everyone and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. Ben, we have survived Christmas season. Yes. Yes. Um, Or actually, yeah, it continues into January, doesn't it? Like the 12 days of Christmas or whatever? Yeah, technically speaking, the Christmas season ends on Epiphany, which is January 7th, I believe. Well, we have made it through the Christmas Day and Eve and Boxing Day. Yes. So, hey, good job. Yay. (laughs) How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing great because I got a booster shot for my COVID vaccine. So I'm three shots in. Feeling good, feeling hearty. I also got my booster and it is affecting me. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I just have like a mild headache and am tired. Ah, well, that's not too, too bad then. No, not at all. Um, Absolutely worth it. Yeah, with uh, Omicron being like a wildfire uh, here in Alberta, I am very happy to have a third vaccine shot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I have taken to starting to wear an N95 mask everywhere, um, which is much better at keeping out the bad stuff. Honestly, like as much as it puts a little bit more pressure on my nose bridge part, mm-hmm. um, I find it the easiest mask to wear with glasses. Yes. Out of all of the masks that I have tried, this one keeps them from fogging up the most yeah now i will admit that the sort of heat of an n95 uh and the sort of recycled feeling of the air that you're breathing is like a little uncomfortable yeah it's a little bit like a greenhouse in your mouth yeah on the (laughs) other hand um the fact that the fabric isn't right against your mouth makes it a little easier to talk so there are pros and cons, but the most important pro is that you don't get COVID. So, you know, <laughs> wear an N95. Also, it helps with uh, not smearing my lipstick. Sure. You yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. Positive things. Um, we have a new patron to thank. Awesome. Thank you to JRC. Uh, this is um, one word long. Oh, this is one word long? Yeah. Oh, shit. Hey, hi, one word long, also known as JRC. Uh, Or I think Owl Sounds on Tumblr. Yeah, a long time listener then. Long time listener, long time fan. But uh, yeah, in their message said that they sort of finally were able to give some disposable income our way. Yeah, well, that's great. Thanks so much for joining the Patreon. Thank you, JRC. If you would like to be like JRC, you can head to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and sign up for just a dollar a month and lots of goodies and bonus audio for uh, anyone who signs up. What are we watching today, Ben? Today, Sarah, we are watching The Thing That Couldn't Die from 1958, directed by Will Cohen. Now, this was like the second half of the Horror of Dracula double feature? That's correct. In the UK. In the UK. Okay. The reason I ask is because um, one could argue that vampires 
are things that couldn't die. Sure. Yeah. So I'm just wondering if like, I'm just spitballing if that's the reason for the pairing. Well, as far as I can tell, this movie is more similar to the man without a body in terms of its basic like idea. Okay. Um, so this film is part of the continuing saga of the studio Universal International. Okay. Uh, who we, of course, have been very familiar with since the earliest days of the podcast. By 1958, Universal International was in trouble. Uh, to remind you, at this point in time, the studio was owned by Decca Records, uh, which back then was one of the largest record labels uh, in the business. Um, but the reason why the studio was in trouble was that the rise of television had proven far more of an issue than initially anticipated, particularly because it dropped the audience numbers for cheap programmer movies uh, down quite a bit and led to sort of an exodus of the contract players and journeyman crews as studios reevaluated their production strategies. Um, so, you know, through the 1950s, several studios were making the decision not to make B-movies anymore, which was leading to the kind of crews that would work on those moving to television, which mm -hmm. sort of bolstered television even more, convincing audiences that they didn't need to go to a movie theater to see a Western when they could just see a Western on TV. Um, so those of you who are familiar with, like, movie theaters are dying because you're staying at home watching Netflix discussions should know that these talks have been happening for a long time, yes. these kinds of conversations. So Universal, going back to the 20s, had always kind of relied on cheap B-movies to bolster their other product. Um, so with these movies starting to like really flounder, uh, Universal didn't really know what to do. So they made the decision in 1958 to shut down production. Uh, for, just completely yes completely for you know what was meant to be a temporary amount of time <laughs> while they reconsidered their business model like it was like we're gonna shut everything down we're gonna spend a few months like working out what the future of universal international is gonna be um, during those months they would focus solely on distribution so you know they'd still be putting out movies but not movies they were producing themselves mm -hmm. so as an example you know horror of dracula in the uk produced by hammer released by universal international in anticipation of this temporary shutdown universal began commissioning projects solely for the purpose of running out the contracts on the studio's numerous day players, directors, writers, crew, so that there would be no one on salary who would not be working during the shutdown. Mm. Um, because the nature of, you know, old-fashioned Hollywood contracts was that you were on salary and you could negotiate, you know, raises and bonuses. But if you weren't on a picture, you were still getting paid. Yeah. So... Uh, a number of these people who were still on contract um, would be signed to contracts that said they had to do so many movies before the end of the contract. So Universal just started kind of pumping out cheap garbage just to run out these contracts. Yeah. People in the studio who were more like executives and middle management and all that kind of stuff, you know, would keep working during the shutdown, obviously. Um, so it'd just be production crews um, who they were trying to get rid of. 
So to this end, the studio purchased the short story The Water Witch from writer David Duncan and retained him to write the screenplay uh, for what was going to be a $150,000 drive-in movie to be shot in two weeks. The story hadn't been, like, published or anything. Okay. The story had sort of been written to try and get optioned into a movie. As with other productions being made at Universal International at this time, filming was to be done on the studio backlot uh, to take advantage of existing standing sets that were going to get torn down. For a time uh, during the shutdown, that studio lot would stand totally empty for a few months before Universal decided to make some easy money and sell the Universal Studio lot for $11 million to MCA, the Music Corporation of America, which was the world's largest talent agency at Mm -hmm. that time. And they would use the lot for their new television production arm, Review Studios. So if you want to see like the way that TV was starting to beat movies at the time. Kind of cannibalizing Mm -hmm. the film industry at this point. Right. So as I mentioned, the film's writer was David Duncan. Um, He had worked in government services for most of his adult life until he began writing science fiction in 1946 at the age of 33. In 1953, he began writing screenplays, finding work within the new giant monster genre. Uh, So he wrote films like 1957's The Monster That Challenged the World, uh, which was about giant mollusks attacking cities. Mollusks? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. He also wrote (laughs) the English dub script for Ishiro Honda's Rodan when it came to America. Duncan's original title... Uh, for this film, The Water Witch, would be changed by the marketing department to The Thing That Couldn't Die. Directing and producing duties on the movie would be handled by Will Cohen, who had been producing and directing short films at Universal since 1940. In 1958, Universal would let Cohen direct two feature films, The Big Beat, which was a rock and roll musical comedy, and this movie. So this is a guy who's doing short subjects for like 20 years at this point. Hmm. How is the pacing? Actually, the pacing might be really good then because he knows like how to fit a lot into a short amount of time. Or the pacing might be really bad because he doesn't know how to fill a feature length time slot with with material. Yeah, but that's the writer's job. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll find out. After this film, Cohen would retire from filmmaking passing away at age 82 in 1994. Cinematography, however, was handled by Russell Meddy, who had a long and distinguished career with the studio, so a a contract cinematographer. Meddy had begun his film career as a lab assistant in 1925, working his way up to become a director of photography at RKO by 1934. Some of his most notable films include Howard Hawks's Bringing Up Baby in 1938, and Orson Welles's The Stranger in 1946. Both of those were for RKO. And then after moving to Universal, uh, he shot the Technicolor melodramas Magnificent Obsession in 1954, There's Always Tomorrow in 1956, All That Heaven Allows in 1956, Written on the Wind in 1956, Battle Hymn in 1957, and A Time to Love and a Time to Die in 1958, 
all four director Douglas Sirk, um, which are all gorgeous Technicolor mm-hmm. movies. Mm-hmm. Additionally, at Universal, he shot Cult of the Cobra in 1955. <laughs> he also shot the Lon Chaney Sr. biopic, The Man of a Thousand Faces for Universal in 1957, starring James Cagney, which features Bud Westmore trying to recreate Lon Chaney Sr. makeups and failing horribly at it yeah i i think even jack pierce would struggle to be honest westmore does them as latex masks oh no and then uh, another film that Meddy shot just before this one was orson wells's failed hollywood comeback touch of evil uh, in 1958 for universal after this movie Meddy would shoot douglas sirk's imitation of life in 1959 Stanley Kubrick's Spartacus in 1960, for which he won an Academy Award, John Huston's The Misfits in 1961, and The Omega Man in 1971. Uh, and he passed away at age 71 in 1978. So big deal cinematographer. Yeah. So this movie will at least look great. Hopefully. Sometimes when you're just shooting something in two weeks, there's only so much you can do, you know? Yeah. But there's like that base level of competence. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. Our lead actor is 27-year-old contract player William Reynolds, who had signed with Universal in 1952. We saw him in Cult of the Cobra in 1955, and he appeared in the Douglas Sirk melodramas There's Always Tomorrow and All That Heaven Allows. After his contract with Universal was up, he moved to television and appeared on the series The FBI from 1966 to 1974. Nice. He largely retired from film and television after that, um, and he turned 90 on December 9th. Oh, wow. Yeah. Good job, William Reynolds. Do you think he's related to Ryan? Mm, I don't think so. Okay. Most of the rest of the cast of this movie similarly consisted of basically like minor day players and character actors who would almost all migrate to television after the ends of their contracts at Universal. The Thing That Couldn't Die began shooting in January of 1958, shot for two weeks during a period when the rest of the Universal studio lot was nearly deserted. That must have been weird. Universal International would release The Thing That Couldn't Die as the lower bill of a double feature with Horror of Dracula in the UK on May 21st, 1958. The film would be released on its own as a programmer for second-run theaters and drive-ins in the US on June 27th, 1958. It was a staple of late-night television, but its only home video release has been on DVD as part of Universal's print-on-demand Universal Vault collection. Uh, So a collection that they don't give t-shirts about. Mm. Um, The fact that it would rerun on late-night TV is, you know, positive. I mean, Universal basically bulk sold all of their horror movies as a TV package called Shock Theater in 1959. So, like, if you wanted dracula you would also get the thing that couldn't die (laughs) and then you just had to show it you know on monster chiller horror theater 
what I mean though is like lots of opportunities for nostalgia for people who grew up yes, watching this yes. on late night TV. And that is certainly true. Um, this movie was featured on episode five of season eight of Mystery Science Theater 3000. Did you for just instance. pull that off the off your dome? Yes, I did. Um, how do you know these numbers? Oh my I don't goodness. Know. <laughs> the magic of Ben's brain. Um <laughs> Well, folks, hopefully you can find a copy to watch along. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude. And when we come back, we will discuss The Thing That Couldn't Die from 1958, directed by Will Cohen. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back, everybody. We just finished watching The Thing That Couldn't Die from 1958, directed by Will Cohen. Sarah, what did you think of this movie? I actually really enjoyed this. Yeah, I actually had a lot of fun watching this movie. There are the characteristic uh, low-budget back-and-forth times and, you know, why are characters acting so dumb? Mm -hmm. But, you know, for the most part, pretty fun movie and i think people would probably enjoy it if they were able to watch it yeah absolutely i think the script is by far the weakest element yeah um so why don't you tell us about the story sure we are at a californian ranch where a gordon is vacationing with his engaged friends linda and hank the ranch is owned by flavia mcintyre Flavia runs this ranch with her niece, Jessica, and two ranch hands, Boyd and Mike. Now, Jessica claims that she is a water witch and she uses dowsing rods to find things. Um, when we come into the film, she is helping her aunt find water, uh, you know, find where, you know, the best spot to dig a well is. And just to be clear about the visuals here, um, usually dowsing rods, when you see them, it's like these two typically metal rods that spin independently. What she is using is basically like a, a fork from a willow tree. Huh. I've always seen dowsing rods as like a branch that's basically a Y shape that you hold from like the handles and then the, the you know, the stem points you in the right direction. Well, to be fair, the dowsing rods I have seen that are like the independent spinny things are uh, what I've seen on ghost hunting shows. So maybe they are ghost specific dowsing rods. Yeah, no, I've literally only ever seen the stick thing. Okay. Yeah. Well, in any case, <laughs> <laughs> Jessica is trying to find where like the next well should be. Now she manages to find a spot and Flavia's like, okay, Boyd and Mike start digging. And suddenly Jessica's like, no, actually, don't dig here. There's something evil down there. And Flavia commands her ranch hands to do it anyways. And Jessica gets really upset um, because she's like 17. So she loses her temper a little bit. And she's like, oh, I, I hope a tree falls on all of you. And just as she says that, a very large branch from the tree nearby 
falls and nearly crushes them, uh, including Linda, who happened to be passing by. Jessica accompanies Linda, Gordon, and Hank back to their cabins to make sure Linda is okay. And everyone there is like, yeah, don't worry, Jessica. It was just a coincidence. And Jessica's like, no, I'm a witch, a water witch. I, I caused that to happen, but I'm, I'm sorry. Like, sometimes my temper gets the better of me. You know, Linda, Hank, and Gordon are all like, sure, Jan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just kind of like, no, we don't, re- we don't really believe you. And basically, Gordon puts it to Jessica that, like, if you can really find things, why don't you help us find Linda's missing watch? And Jessica's like, oh, yeah, it was taken by the rat that lives on the farm, and it's in this rat den by this old tree. They look there, and they do find Linda's watch. So now they believe Jessica, or at least are a step closer to believing. Also, around the tree's roots... Um, they find an old medallion that is shown with like a cross, a crown, and a fleur-de-lis. Um, now, Gordon, he's in college for, I forget if they say, but archaeology or something adjacent. And he cleans it up and gives it to Jessica and says, like, you know, given these symbols, this thing is supposed to protect you and, you know, puts it on her. And it's clear that she, Jessica, has a big crush on Gordon It's unclear whether Gordon has a crush on her or not because he makes comments like, I remember when she was a little girl and now you're a grown woman. Yeah, she was 13 when he left to go to college. So that comes up. But like, he's got a very like condescending sort of attitude towards her. That doesn't indicate that you aren't into someone if you're a 1950s man. That just indicates that you are like interacting with someone interacting with a woman sure uh so yeah there's like some weird stuff going on between the two of them sure yeah meanwhile uh over at the the hole that mike and boyd are digging um they find an old chest now flavia's like great open it give me the treasure um a little a little money crazed and gordon's like no like this might be worth more closed then it is open because this is from like the 1500s. Um, let me go get my old history professor back in Berkeley, bring him here. And that way, like he can verify the validity of this. Um, when you open it, he'll be able to say like, yes, this is real treasure or whatever. And just, you know, be able to put some value to your find. So Flavia is like, great, cool. Let's do that. Um, has Mike and Boyd, take the chest into the house and kind of lock it up and have them stand guard over it. Now, Jessica, when she sees that this chest is coming in, she's like, no, that's the evil thing. I don't want to be in this house while it's here. So she goes and sleeps over at Linda's cabin for the night. Now, I I haven't really talked about this, but Mike is... um, It's like an of mice and men situation. Yeah, he's not smart... And they're very condescending to him. Yeah, Mike's big, dumb, and strong. And so Boyd gets to, like, order him around everywhere. That's the gist of it. Yeah. And Boyd is set up to be a pervert. Um, He goes, peepin' Tom. So he's, like, a gross dude. And we we see he's also uh, a bit of a thief. Um, He goes up and steals the key to the room from Flavia. And then convinces Mike to 
um, opened the chest with his bare hands um, and, you know, says like, don't worry, Flavia said this was okay um, as long as you don't damage it. And then once it's open, we'll take out our share, close it. No one will be wiser. Yeah, no one knew how much treasure there was to begin with. So how can they tell anything's missing? Exactly. And Mike goes, okay. And he goes and he does manage, you know, to use his hands to open it. And what he finds inside is not gold, not jewels, but a human head uh, staring back at him and moving its mouth like it can speak telepathically. And um, the gist is basically that this human head has this telepathic control or communication in some way to Mike. Now, when Boyd comes in and sees that Mike has opened the chest, he gets all mad, and then Mike ends up killing Boyd, um, kind of well-deservedly, because Boyd is a creep, and, you know, he's set up to you be okay with him to die. Um, but his death screams wake up Flavia and kind of gets everyone over um, to see, like, the bloody scene. Uh, by the time everyone gets there, however, Mike carrying the head uh, that was in this chest and dragging Boyd out um, of the house, uh, they, they get away into the wilderness. Gordon has made it back with the professor, and they're able to start to identify parts of the chest. There is an inscription on the top of it, and they're able to see that, okay, this is from the, like the 1500s and is uh, the resting place of the, the head of Gideon Drew, who is executed for sorcery um, and tells of like, you know, if you open this, you'll lose your soul or something like that. And that um, this head is going to be searching for its body that has been buried nearby. Meanwhile, Flavia wants to find where the treasure went. Um, not really fully believing that it's a man's head. Uh, so she's trying to convince Jessica to use her dowsing powers to go find where the treasure has gone. And now Jessica's already set up that, you know, there are certain rules that I follow. I, I can't do this in exchange for money. It has to help someone, whatever. And so she refuses to do this to find the treasure. However, um, Gordon comes in and he's like, well, you know, you know, Boyd might be hurt and dying. We have to go find him. So she agrees to do the dowsing to find Boyd. So she goes and she does that. And as she is wandering the wilderness alone, she faints because she's overcome with this vision of getting in Drew's execution from the 1500s. Now, it is like a whole section, so I'll just briefly cover it. Um, we see that Gideon is being executed and beheaded for being a sorcerer, having made a pact with the devil. Um, and the person who is kind of leading the execution is wearing the medallion that Jessica uh, was given earlier. And it's made clear that, you know, Gideon has like telepathic mind control powers, but if you're wearing the medallion, you're protected. Then we see the actual beheading and then, you know, buried, etc. They they put a curse on him, which is why he's like still alive in the present day. And it's one of those like nonsense, like why would you do that curse kind of curses. Um, and it's sort of unclear like why the priest the the guy in the hood with the talisman like has the power to do curses but 
regardless, the gist of it is that, like, because Gideon's a warlock, so he's gotten all this, like, evil power from Satan, you know, the way that usually works is Satan's going to get your soul when you die. But I guess the fine print on that deal is that, like, if his body's not intact, Satan won't get his soul. And since God doesn't want it, it'll just, like, stay Stay. in his body, which seems off. But regardless, so they behead him so that he will be in this, like, eternal living death. And then they bury the two parts separately and say that, like, you know, he won't, his soul won't go to hell to be with Satan until the two halves are joined again, which it doesn't make sense, but I'll talk about that later. So when we come back, um, Jessica wakes up from this vision. She does find Boyd's body um, just in time for the cops to arrive uh, at this far off ranch. And so that's kind of being taken care of because the cops have now arrived. They're like, okay, it's probably Mike who killed him. Let's find Mike. And so Gideon finds a way to get Linda under his control and then sends Mike off to go get shot by the police because he's uh, too hot a piece of merchandise right now. So now with Linda under his control, um, the next step is to get the medallion off of Jessica because the end goal for Gideon is for Jessica to use her dowsing powers to find where his body is buried. Flavia, Gordon, and the professor also hope to find the the coffin with the body um, for academic purposes. Flavia, because she's going to get paid. Jessica, however, wants nothing to do with this. She's like, okay, the last time I used dowsing, I found a dead body. Evil is all around here. I'm getting out of Dodge. I'm going to go stay with my cousin. So she plans to leave. Before she does, though, Gordon asks for the medallion just to borrow it. Because he wants to make a cast of it um, with the end goal of eventually giving it back. And Jessica goes, okay, you know what, you you can take it then. Leaving her open to be mind controlled, which it happens pretty much immediately. Now, the mind control, it's not very clear with Mike. It's a little more clear with Linda, but it's explicit with Jessica that you become kind of a, a bad version of yourself. Yeah, you become evil. So with Linda, it's shown with her being like rude and um, calling off the engagement to Hank, kind of laughing in his face like, huh, marry an artist. <laughs> and with Jessica, it's um, she's now wearing all black, a deep cut dress. Her hair is up in like a hairnet thing and she drinks <laughs> and smooches boys. Oh, my. Yeah, it's very... Um... Very dark Phoenix saga. Yes. <laughs> when, a, when a lady turns evil, that's when she gets like, you know, agency. agency. Now that she's under the control, she also goes and does the dowsing, finds where the body is, and they dig it up and bring it into the house. As they, the whole team, like everyone is here, um, no cops, the cops are gone. Um, they start to open the casket and Jessica leaves to go get the head. And as soon as they kind of unlock the coffin, it opens by itself and the beheaded body of Gideon walks out and everyone's freaking the fuck out. Um, except for, of course, Linda, who has continued she to be under control. Yeah. yeah. And then Jessica comes back, puts the head onto the shoulders and Gideon 
is alive and can speak finally and begins to like laugh in everyone's faces major major props to this movie by the way for being like the first movie we've seen that remembers that like if you are a severed head you can't talk because mm-hmm. you need your lungs to be able to make sounds with your mouth so i i really did appreciate <laughs> that like he can't actually speak until they put him back on his body yeah um and basically he's like i'm an old leathery husk i'm going to drain someone's blood to become like whole again you gordon you're a handsome young man i'm going to take your blood now gordon who has read the full like prophecy whatever that was on the top of the chest knows the power of the medallion whips it out and basically like horror of dracula-esque pushes gideon back into his coffin and then throws the medallion on him and closes it and that seems to be enough to like cause the telepathic control to end on linda and jessica because they kind of shake it off and then they're like oh well let's open the coffin again just to make sure he's dead and that's when ben and i are like dead you didn't do anything to him and they open up the casket and it's just a pile of bones gordon takes the medallion off of the pile of bones and puts it back around jessica's neck and goes well hopefully this will protect us in the future and it's like implied like yay they're the breeding couple also linda and hank get back together it's fine uh that's the end yep so i know that that might sound a little wild and there were moments where i'm like and then this happens, I guess. Mm. But it is a fun, dope movie. I did really enjoy this for the most part. Yeah, it's got elements that work and elements that don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a huge fan of the writing. Yeah. Um, mostly because it's just like full of holes. Full of holes, full of like, I'll use tropes or stereotypes as the glue without putting any real thought or going back to make this stronger. Like the character motivations are kind of inconsistent. Mm -hmm. People kind of jump back and forth from different attitudes all the time. You know, like Jessica's got her like weird rules by which she will do her witchcraft, but other people's attitudes to her witchcraft are really weird and inconsistent. Like whether they believe her or not in like the moment, um, this starts right away where initially Gordon doesn't believe in Jessica's stuff because he's a scientist. And then later, once it's like amply demonstrated to him, he's like, oh, I guess you are magic. Cool. I believe in magic now. Just kind of a full believer rather than wanting to look into like, well, what's the science behind this? Does this mean that all magic is real? Right. Like, does this mean that vampires are real? Right. Like no like <laughs> conversation or thought to like the implications of like, I guess witchcraft is real. I And especially given that like her proof is her telling them, oh yeah, her watch is in the rat trap. Which she just knows. She doesn't use the Taoist. No, no, no. Yeah. Which is, you know, she's got telepathy or whatever, but also (laughs) she like lives on the ranch and could have just seen that. And also would just know like if something glittery goes missing, it's the local rat. Right. But nobody questions that part of it. Right. Or the other thing is like at the start of the movie when she finds what she thinks at first is like a well with her dowsing rod and they're like oh dig here and then she's like don't and aunt flavia's like ah fuck that we'll dig anyway it's like okay so you trusted her magic enough to dig here but not enough to not dig here when she says not to so you know people have weird motivations 
it's really unclear whether we're supposed to like any of these people. Yeah, that's like the main thing with this too, um, especially between Flavia and Jessica. Yeah. Because you'd think like, okay, we're supposed to be on Jessica's side of, you know, she doesn't want to do the dowsing unless it's for these rules. And like, they're also like, okay, rules of like, sure. I don't want to be compensated for this. Like, whatever. I want to do this, these things for the right reasons. And then Flavia is like, well, let's trick her into using her dowsing powers so we can find the treasure. And then Gordon goes along with it. And even also the professor's like, well, I think it's a good thing to trick this lady into using her dowsing powers in order for us to find the casket. Oh, yeah. The the professor they bring from the university who just is like, oh, we found all this through magic. Cool. Let's do more magic. Like has no reaction to this at all either. Gordon's motivations are really weird because he'll stick up once he believes in Jessica's powers, he'll stick up for her and be like, you shouldn't force her to do things. But he clearly like wants to find the casket. So when Jessica changes her mind because she's been mind controlled, Gordon just kind of goes along with it and doesn't seem to uh, like question it at all. And although we're supposed to clearly like Jessica, you know, the idea is supposed to be that like she's pure and innocent, right? She's kind of, also a bit of like a like no one's home a little bit like she's not written very well well yeah she's she's so her personality as written makes her just seem like a little bit too naive and innocent yeah i think she's written very surface level and i think that's what you're picking up with that yeah comment of like nothing upstairs like she she's written as like I'm a young woman who just became of dateable, marriageable age. Also, I'm a witch. Yeah, except that, like, her whole thing is she's just like, oh, hi, Gordon. Hi, Linda. You know, she she seems, like, totally naive and trusting of everyone, even when they've been like, Jessica, we want you to do evil things. And she's like, no, I won't do evil things. So, can I borrow your dresses? Like... Yeah, she's she's just like it's really hard to get behind her as a main character because she seems kind of dumb, but it's hard to get behind Gordon as a main character because his like attitude towards things is all over the place. Um, Hank never gets mind controlled, but he gets like real weird and evil anyway. Well, yeah, when Linda dumps him, he uh, dips into the sauce a bit. Yeah, he has like a weird off camera alcoholism subplot and then like tries to like put the moves on jessica off camera yeah in almost this... in a way to also make linda jealous right but it's like really weird but it's like a completely unresolved Thing. subplot yeah um so there's just like a lot of weird character stuff in this movie a lot of kind of arbitrary elements where you just wonder like why is that here the ending is very weak Yes. Like they just kind of defeat this guy by like making him go back in his casket. And then he just that defeats And tossing him. The, the medallion on right. him. I feel like it's the power of the medallion that but makes like, him turn to dust. It just, he doesn't seem like he's much, like he was more of a threat as a disembodied head somehow <laughs> than just as like some dude with a knife in the living room. Sure. And yeah. And then they put him back in the box and that kills him somehow. Yeah, the way that the magic works with Gideon makes no sense. Well... Because it's just kind of like, 
barely put together with inspiration from very like clear places like Dracula and the Cross or The Mummy and a Prophecy. Right. It's got some giant from the unknown mm. feels as well with the like, oh, we found this like Dude, 1500s explorer buried in California and he was like super evil. He's so evil that he's still alive today, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. Um, so, okay. Gideon has warlock powers from Satan. Yeah. Which is like how warlock powers work. So that makes sense. But what's weird is that like the dude who curses him is wearing what you'd think is a crucifix, but it's not because it's like also an anchor and it has a crown on it and also has a fleur de lis on it. So it's just this like weird, like lucky charms ass mix of, <laughs> of elements. And he's wearing that and he's wearing like an executioner's hood, but he's not the executioner who beheads Gideon. So it's like, are you a priest? Like, what the fuck are you? And he pronounces his judgment on Gideon. And my, one of my favorite things about that scene is like, the writer knows that they should be speaking like old timey English. So he kind of writes it all Shakespearean style. Right. But their accents are just like flat American accents, which I think is funny. But anyways, if he's like a Christian priest, like, I don't know if priests really have like the power to condemn your soul to stay in your body after death. I don't think that's really like under their jurisdiction. Well, I, here's the thing, Ben, we are in a mirror universe we're in the multiverse, as it were. And this is a place where magic works because we have Satan and warlocks. And so clearly the guy who has the cross is a cleric. Uh, that's his yeah. cross. No. Yeah. Yeah. I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. No, I'm totally. saying that that's not a power that Christian clerics have. <laughs> there are like things like there are things that the Holy Spirit lets priests do. This is not one of them. Um, but furthermore, <laughs> let's, let's but, call up the apocryphals and just make sure. <laughs> okay. Furthermore, though, this guy's evil, right? And his mm -hmm. soul is evil and bad. And the thing about that is so if you want to punish him, then his soul should go to hell to be punished by Satan. You want his soul to go to hell. Condemning it to stay here doesn't make any sense it's not a punishment like yeah he can't do much as a disembodied head but like clearly he's able to do a lot as a disembodied head and the idea that like the curse will only be broken if we bring your head and body together and then satan will get your soul like that just within christian theology that doesn't make sense as a curse or a punishment and furthermore if that's the case if if the curse on him is ended if he rejoins his head and his body. That implies that he would want to end the curse. And that's sort of backed up by the fact that they say the head's going to be looking for the body. But once his head is on his body, it's clear that what he wants to do is like go around and do Satanism at people and gain more power. But it, it's putting his head on his body is what's supposed to kill him. And it kind of does, because then once they make him get back in his coffin and toss the talisman in there, he turns to bones. So it's just really unclear, like, what Gideon wants or what's supposed to be, like, a good thing or a bad thing for him. Mm -hmm. Because, like, the whole reason why Satan tempts you with magic powers to make you make a deal with him in exchange for your soul is because he's tempting you towards evil. And then you're evil. And then your soul goes to hell for punishment because you were evil. 
So it just doesn't make any sense. The whole, all of the lore in this movie does not make sense is what I'm trying to say. And it ends up with an ending that instead of having like kind of a super powerful villain who needs to be defeated by the heroes through like guile or intelligence or the power of good or anything. Like I thought because the movie makes such a big deal of Jessica being innocent and pure and good. That there would be more of a battle of wits or a battle of powers or something but then like she's just like easily taken over as soon as she like it's also super easy for her to like not have the medallion anymore the bad guys don't even have to do anything right and the good guys don't have to do anything either because the bad guys plan is i want to put my head back on my body which is the thing that will kill me um but also with jessica like in the last part of the movie when she's under gideon's control her like bad girl act is so over the top that I thought there was going to be some sort of twist where it turned out that like she actually wasn't under his control the whole time. And she was like manipulating events to get to the point where she could bring the head and put it back on the body and therefore kill Gideon. But that's not what's Mm -hmm. happening at all. And we don't like the heroes don't have to do anything to, to save the day. Yeah. Don't, don't think too hard about how this movie works because as you said, the writing is the weakest part Mm -hmm. of this. Um, I think it's also important not to think too hard about what bad girl means right. when you're under so like under this dude's control because it's about being promiscuous and bossy and your own woman and like don't eh. It is worth pointing out that this is a problematic trope that like is very widespread in fiction from the later half of the twentieth century. We still kind of see it like watch the shows and the movies that you like and think about times when a female character is turned evil and think about how many times that's accompanied by her like suddenly dressing in skin tight black leather that makes her look real sexy (laughs) i think overall this film looks really good i think the talent of the cinematographer really comes through that's one of the big saving graces of this movie is it looks really good yeah yeah lots of good use of like shadow and silhouette and like interesting compositions where we have like foreground midground and background elements mm-hmm. and like cool blocking yeah the the cinematography really helps this movie have like atmosphere and i think the pacing is pretty okay yeah stuff's always happening yeah and it's more than just like back and forth like they find new ways of uh padding the time mm. um so for like a another typical B movie that's super cheap and just needs to fill time. You would go back from A to B to A to B to the cabin and back Mm -hmm. (laughs) from a couple episodes ago. Whereas here to fill time, you know, we'll have Jessica leading everyone and they'll be kind of staying far behind and commenting on where she's going. And she'll eventually find her way to where Jessica finds something and then everyone follows. So it's still kind of that there and back again, but it's one time going there and it's just a bunch of people following. You know, we, we sort of commented that these things are arbitrary and they don't add to the plot. But like the weird tangents and subplots that this movie has of like, oh, Boyd's kind of rapey and like Hank's got a drinking problem and like, you know, they pad the time out, but they do it in a way that's like it's always new content, I guess, is is what I'm trying to say. As much as those elements, it's like, why did we need those subplots? It's like, hey, at least that's better than watching people drive from town to the ranch and town to the ranch back and forth. Right. Will Cohen content creator (laughs) (laughs) 
I didn't know if I liked Carolyn Kearney's performance as Jessica mm-hmm. at first because it did kind of feel like like just so shallow. Um, and she just seemed to be playing Jessica as this like caricature almost of an innocent waif. Um, but then when she got to switch to like bad girl Jessica, she was clearly having a lot of fun. And the reason why she played good girl Jessica so over the top became a little more clear to contrast with bad girl Jessica. So I'm, I'm a little more charitable to her performance after that. The music is a mix of library tracks and reused Creature from the Black Lagoon, mm-hmm. uh, Spider-Man theme and all. And it, it, I feel like that really brought down the quality of the movie for yeah, me. Yeah, it kind of ruins the atmosphere that the movie's building when every time we see the head just kind of sitting there staring at people, you know, the score goes, bum, bum, bum. Yeah, because the thing about Creature from the Black Lagoon is it's building a different kind of atmosphere and it's definitely more like that. That music fits that movie. Mm. It doesn't fit this movie, which makes sense because it was not made for the thing that couldn't die. Yeah. I do think that while he doesn't get a lot to do, Robin Hughes, who plays Gideon Drew, seems to be having a lot of fun. Yes, it made me very glad that he was able to speak, both mm-hmm. in the flashback and in the ending. And I thought that the like headless effects were like pretty well done and the like makeup effects for his weird mummified skin were pretty well done. Yeah. The other thing about this movie that's just kind of cool is it's very different from a lot of the other product that Universal was putting out at this time. You know, it's not like an atomic age sci-fi horror. Um, There isn't like a big monster. Mm -hmm. Um, It's all this like weird satanic curses from the past stuff that aren't mummy stuff. It also had some Carrie vibes. Sure. Um, Yeah. Uh, And kind of like almost a proto Stephen King yeah, it like obviously was still just set at a ranch rather than a small town, but it had that very focused element um, and like witchcraft in like the, well, I guess we're in California, but witchcraft in New England. Right. The thing that gave me the Stephen King vibe was kind of the, you know, the villain of the piece is not the only person who has like weird magic powers, mm-hmm. right? That we have this like innocent lead who has supernatural powers who has to battle the evil that has supernatural powers that's a very stephen king thing right what's interesting to me is that as much as it feels very different from a lot of universal stuff except for the scenes where jessica wanders through the woods at night in a white (laughs) nightgown yeah she that's what she's putting on when boyd uh is peeping and um like girl you're in the middle of nowhere. Don't put on a white nighty. That also belongs to Linda. That's a little weird. Yeah. And and then, you know, she wanders around the forest at night in it. And it was like, okay, no, this is a universal movie. <laughs> but the rest of the elements feel very like AIP. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I mentioned Giant from the Unknown already. But even just the whole thing of like weird, not really logical magic curse stuff is happening. But we're going to have all of these like characters um, sort of stuck together in one location who all have like their own personal issues. Yeah. 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 Yeah, Definitely. You can see the Roger Corman influence in the screenplay, which is, again, really interesting to see. Yeah. To see Universal being like, yeah, we really got to ape 
some of this guy who can do these movies in, you know, a quarter of the budget that we do. Yeah. Um, so yeah, this was actually a lot better than I thought it would be for a movie that was essentially like made to like use up resources, basically. Yeah. And I, I think it might have been a pretty good um, second half of a double feature with Horror of Dracula. Sure. Because it's like nothing's going to like reach the same highs as Horror of Dracula. But this, you know, it's good. Part of me wonders if like the universal sales guy who decided on that double bill was like, I don't know, man, the ending's basically the same. It really is. (laughs) (laughs) So where would you like to rank this? Well, Sarah, I've got a really big range. So I'm hoping that you'll be able to like help narrow it down with whatever you've picked. Okay. Um, So... The top of my range, initially I was looking for the maze. Sure. I don't really know why. Because Frog Boy lives, Ben. Right. <laughs> um, but I knew that this might be better than the maze. That's what my heart was telling oh, me. Okay. Well, I disagree with that, but I'll let you continue. So I looked for the maze, which is currently at 51. Right above the maze is movies like The Vampire and The Werewolf, which are both like weird science takes on those monsters. Um, I was a teenage werewolf and back from the dead, which is the one about the wife who possesses her husband's second wife. And, um, back from the dead has like a lot of interesting premise to it, but like the execution's kind of flawed. Um, but right above back from the dead is queen of spades. And this is not as good as queen of spades. So my ceiling was 47. Okay. I then started looking down to try and find, you know, movies that I couldn't find arguments for being better than this. And I ended up way down uh, at number 78. I I sort of, you know, passed movies like Dementia and The Black Sleep and Son of Dracula and The Black Room. And I hit It Came From Outer Space. I was like, this is better than It Came From Outer Space. Like, It Came From Outer Space is a lot of fun, but it was really early in the decade and a lot of the ideas that it had were done better in subsequent iterations so i thought this should be higher than it came from outer space but you know right above that is the amazing mr x which is also a very like stylish movie like this one so that's my range 47 to 78 okay well my range does fit within yours so i can help narrow um when i was first looking you had mentioned that um some of the actors in the thing that couldn't die had also been in cult of the cobra that's right so i went there first and i was like okay this feels fairly comparable looking down i felt that this was probably better than mr x but maybe could be you know compared with half human here at number 76 because they both are trying to do a lot there's a question of like well who are we supposed to sympathize with um i think you could make the case that half human is better and i think you can make the case that the thing that couldn't die is better with like its uh, atmosphere and such so that's what i made the bottom looking up from there the top of your range is definitely too high in my opinion Uh um i stopped looking at the devil commands at 68 Mm, because it also has like the devil mind control blah right and a supernatural ending and i think like in the devil commands um the supernatural ending is more bombastic Mm -hmm. than the thing that couldn't die but i think 
the thing that can die does the rest of the movie probably a bit better. Yeah, I would I would definitely agree with that. The body of the thing that couldn't die is much better, but Devil Commands, like practically the only thing I remember from Devil Commands is the ending, because the ending is very cool. So my range was 68 to 76. That being said, like looking above the Devil Commands, I could go as high as Son of Dracula, maybe, just thinking about like the way the atmosphere is handled, but I would not go any higher. Okay, Quatermass 2 is at 75. Which one was Quatermass 2? Um, Quatermass 2 is um, all of the aliens are like inhabiting people mm. and one dude gets like covered in tar or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, okay, it's the one with the factory. Okay, I think this is probably a better horror movie than Jujin Yuki Otoko. Um because that movie has like a weird like poaching subplot and a few other things going on that kind of distract from the horror elements in it, um, even if they're on theme with what that movie is about. Mm-hmm. Um, but Quatermass 2, the threat feels larger and more imminent, and it's like a little bit creepier and has a bit more like terror than this movie. So I'm sort of thinking we put this at 76, below Quatermass 2 and above Half Human. Yeah, I think that's a good spot. Um, The reason why I was also like looking below Cult of the Cobra even is Cult of the Cobra is like by happenstance about something really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, The thing that couldn't die isn't. Yeah, it's just like a fun little... Horror movie. Right. Yeah. No, I like this spot. Okay. So entering the list at the new number 76 is The Thing That Couldn't Die from 1958, directed by Will Cohen. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episode that we've mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you would like to contest this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our ask box on Tumblr. You can email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can help support the show by leaving us a rating or a review. Subscribe to the show on your podcasting app of choice using our RSS feed. And you can also help us out by telling a friend about the show, sharing it on social media, or if you have the means, you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and support the show financially. You can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 levels get access to regular bonus content. And each and every month we have our poll for our horror-adjacent bonus episode um so if you want to be part of the decision making process head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast and another thank you to jrc slash one word long for being our newest patron thank you so much what are we watching next week ben so next week's movie is the return of dracula and but he was just here before (laughs) you you get too excited No, Hammer did not make a Dracula sequel in like two weeks. Um, This is completely unrelated to Hammer's movie, though I'm sure the indie crew that made this was was hoping. hoping. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So it's it's cash-in Dracula time with a movie that's about Dracula visiting his relatives in the U.S.? (laughs) 
see you next week, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye.